The world is a confusing place, filled with all manner of shimmering distractions that take our conscious mind and our immortal souls and subvert them into the most basal of human emotions. Can any one of us who considers ourselves a spiritual being truly look around the carnival at the barkers, performers, and the caged animals and believe, even momentarily, that any of this is as it should be? My name is Alan Bishop, the alchemist of the Black Forest of Indiana, distiller, historian, occasional tinker, reenactor, and your host of If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything. Have you ever noticed the world isn't quite what it presents itself to be? That something is just a little off kilter, just a little out of focus. Perhaps that movement you caught out of the corner of your eye was more than a shadow, that weight on your shoulder more than fatigue. I have lived my whole life like this, aware, awake, and waiting for the next experience, positive or negative, always apprehensive, always analyzing. I believe that spiritual warfare is real. I believe from societal observation that others are becoming acutely aware. I believe that many are being influenced by forces unknown in a negative and spiritually deprived way. I see soft disclosure in every corner of pop culture. Join us as we pull back the curtain, as the veil thins and reach with us into the ether to reclaim the truth. But if you have ghosts, you have everything. Montague Summers, a true life Van Helsing. When I first came up with the idea for If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything, the entire premise was to, in my own small sphere of influence in the world, make it okay to talk about the paranormal and the preternatural amongst the distilling world. Primarily because I felt that for an industry so steeped in alchemical history, that its unfortunate industrialization had caused an erosion of the very spiritual premises laid out by Hermes Trismegistus and later built upon by the mystery schools, the monks, the green witches, and more. The distillery owners rarely had any real practical understanding of the science and arts and were even less curious about the spiritual purpose of said arts. The sales teams were so focused on the bottom line it was often like talking to a calculator. And the marketing teams really only care if they can spin it into some kind of press release. The distillers fell into a few different camps. Generally, there were the chemists, who in spiritual terms take the hardcore scientific route. So lifeless, it's literally like watching paint dry. And then there's those who never really gave it a thought. There were those who were all the way in steeped in esoteric thought already, and those who were borderline. 
paying enough attention to know something was up. The press for time, such that they could never really dive in and investigate, or develop a practical working knowledge themselves. I wanted to bring my two worlds together, the practical distilling and the spiritual philosophy, and develop a platform where people both inside and outside the industry could speak on what they believe, what they think, what they understand, or what they have experienced to an audience made up primarily of people who follow me for my distilling work, but also of other curious seekers. My intention is to take all of this to its logical conclusion. Thus the title, The Alchemist of the Black Forest. And truthfully, I think Peter Murphy summed it up the best. I am also very aware that this podcast, documentation of my reality and passion and truth, is an outlier in the realm of this type of podcast. Not only because it doesn't stick to a formulaic plan and format, but because amongst my peers in this realm, I am one of the few non-Christians and not afraid to speak on that matter publicly. Never have been. I don't intend to tuck tail now or ever. I make it clear to anyone who works with me where I stand, and if they want to know more about my spiritual intuition, it is a conversation I am glad to have. This is all to say that I love talking to those who are more Bible-minded than myself. But one of the things I've always found very odd is the strange relationship that fundamental Christians have to high strangeness and the paranormal, not only in the sense of arming oneself against the darker forces of this world, which can only really happen if you have a functional understanding of their means, motivations, and origins, but in the sense of absolute disbelief that can be had. It is lost on me how certain groups of believers can interpret miracles, angels, resurrection, world floods, and more, and yet not have a belief in other paranormal factors. Call them what you may different names for the same phenomenon without question quite often, but don't deny someone else's experience. I know this is built into the narrative of fundamental practice quite often within the three major religions. Personally, I believe this to be a mistake, if one can read context as opposed to listen to pure dogma. I find it particularly interesting when someone is able to deny such paranormal and preternatural entities and events, if and when their belief system is tied specifically to religious practice, which includes form and ceremony. I think quite often the belief and understanding is there and heavily built into the practice, but it becomes almost an embarrassment to acknowledge 
as such many figures get treated as pariahs amongst the audiences who should be paying the most attention. Lost in the cracks, treated as crazy, lost to history, and subsequently largely forgotten, when in fact these people often have the most to contribute to the conversation, despite their flaws. The man we're going to look at tonight falls deeply into this unfortunate category. Even I, as a non-traditional Gnostic heathen, can see the importance of his cause and the relevance of his Gnosis in my own otherwise disconnected worldview, particularly in light of the fact that we are clearly steering this world into territory that is frightening, physically, but also mentally and spiritually. And while I don't agree with all of his assessments, and certainly not with some of the factors in his life, he certainly favors his ghost tales with a dose of dogma and a soothsayer's charm. I do, however, believe there is much to learn from him. Well, he's unafraid to lean into vampire and werewolf lore, and often sounds like an escaped loon, and likely had some mental health issues. His method of speaking to the world was heavily influenced, quite obviously, by the Victorian-era romanticism of Mary Shelley and Bram Stoker, as well as spiritualists such as Crowley, Blavatsky, and likely Rasputin. A product of his time, and clearly speaking to an audience of his time, this doesn't make the message any less relevant, interesting, disturbing, macabre, and yes, even entertaining. His own words reflecting my own thoughts tell me strange things. Augustus Montague Summers was born the 10th of April, 1880, in Clifton, Bristol, England, and died on the 10th of August, 1948, in Richmond, Surrey, England. The youngest of seven children born to Augustus William Summers, a wealthy banker and justice of the peace. Early in his life, he found himself in deep rebellion against his father's evangelical low church beliefs, turning instead to the ritual-rich Anglo-Catholicism. Entering Trinity College of Oxford in 1899 to study theology, it became quickly apparent that his interests lay elsewhere, despite his voracious appetite for reading and understanding of Latin. In 1904, he finally received a fourth-class bachelor in arts, which was upgraded in 1906 to a Master of Arts. Thereafter, he studied at Litchfield Theological College with the intent of becoming a priest in the Church of England. Summers was ordained as a deacon in 1908 and worked as a curate in Bath and Bitten near Bristol. He, however, never moved to higher orders in the church, and though the record is not clear, it is likely due to persistent rumors of his interest in Satanism and accusations of sexual impropriety with young boys. The later claim he was tried and acquitted for. Summers was an avid reader of Joris Carl Hussmans, a member of the French decadent movement 
who is not dissimilar to Hunter S. Thompson and the subsequent Gonzo movements. Hussman's quadrilogy, Aldas, Enroutes, and La Cathedral, all feature Doral, a character on a spiritual journey who eventually converts to Catholicism. In the last of these three novels, Le Blas, Doral becomes an oblate in a monastery, as Heisman's himself was in the Benedictine Abbey near Poitiers in 1901. In Le Bas, the Black Mass ceremony is mentioned, which likely influenced Summer's interest in Satanism and in holding and attending such ceremonies himself. In 1809, Summers converted to Catholicism and began studying at St. John's Seminary. Reverend Alphonsus Joseph Mary Augustus Montague Summers and acted as a Catholic priest, even though he was never a member of any Catholic order or diocese, supposedly. Whether he was actually ordained as a priest is disputed. According to some sources, Summers had transferred from the seminary at Warnish to the Diocese of Nottingham, but the local bishop refused to ordain him after receiving incriminating reports of Summers' prior conduct. Other sources claim that Summers traveled to continental Europe and was ordained there by Cardinal Mercier in Belgium or by Archbishop Guido Maria Conforti in Italy. According to yet another version of events, Summers was ordained as a priest by Ulrich Vernon Herford, the self-styled Bishop of Mercia, and one of several wandering bishops operating in Britain at the time. From 1911 to 1926, Summers found employment as a teacher of English and Latin, among other posts. He was an assistant master at the junior school of the Central School of Arts and Crafts in Holborn. In 1922, he became senior English master at Brockley County School in Southeast London. Despite his eccentric appearance and habits, he appears to have been a successful and well-respected teacher. Summers gave up teaching in 1926 after the success of his first book on witchcraft allowed him to adopt writing as his full-time occupation. At around this same time, Summers began to establish himself as an independent scholar of dramatic literature and the Stuart Restoration. Montague first began his occult writing career in 1916, writing for occult periodicals such as the Occult Review and the spiritualist publication Light. Keegan Paul published Summers, The History of Witchcraft and Demonology, and his series, History of Civilization, in 1926. The introduction therein reads, In the following pages, I have endeavored to show the witch as she really was, an evil lover, a social pest and parasite, the devotee of a loathy and obscene creed, an adept at poisoning, blackmail, and other creeping crimes, a member of a powerful secret organization, inimical to church and state, a blasphemer in word and deed, swaying the villagers by terror and superstition, a charlatan 
and a quack sometimes, a bawd, an abortionist, the dark counselor of lewd court ladies and adulterous gallants, a minister to vice and inconceivable corruption, battening upon the filth and foulest passions of the age. The piece was so successful that Ogden published a follow-up in his 1927 History of Civilization called The Geography of Witchcraft. Not content with writing original witch hunt pieces, Montague turned to republishing Heinrich Kramer's Malleus Maleficarium, The Hammer of Witches in 1928. The volume originally published in the 15th century in Latin was widely adapted as the go-to edition for the hunting of witches. In the original introduction that Montague wrote, he insists that the reality of witchcraft is an indispensable part of Catholic doctrine and thus declares the volume as an admirable and correct accounting of witchcraft and the means and methods necessary for combating it despite the church widely condemning the manual on ethical and legal grounds in the 15th century. Reverend Herbert Thurston, a Catholic contemporary of Summers, also slammed the volume in his article, Witchcraft, for the Catholic Encyclopedia of 1912, where he refers to the volume as a disastrous episode. Montague then turned his attention to the classic vampires, writing the vampire his kith and kin in 1928's and the Vampire in Europe in 1929, followed by The Werewolf in 1933. In 1933, copies of Summer's translations of the Confessions of Madeleine Bavents and of Ludovico Maria Sinistari's demonality were seized by police due to their explicit accounts of sexual intercourse between humans and demons. At the ensuing trial of the publisher for obscene libel, anthropologist E. E. Evans Pritchard testified in defense of the scholarly value of the works in question. The publisher, Reginald Catton, was convicted and the unsold copies destroyed. During his lifetime, Summers also published a great deal of fictional work compiling three anthologies of supernatural stories, the supernatural omnibus, the grimoire, and other supernatural stories and Victorian ghost stories. He's been described as the major anthologist of supernatural and gothic fiction in the 1930s. Summers approached his writing from the perspective of a Catholic true believer, and his influence lives on in many modern-day horror tropes, Historian Juliet Wood remarked, Summer's concern with the macabre aspects of the supernatural has a very modern feel, and the links between vampires and satanic masses, so beloved of horror films and popular exorcisms, owe much to his particular body of work. Perhaps his real legacy is that he combined all the elements of the gothic novel into an allegedly real satanism that creates a tension between reality and fiction that appeals so strongly to postmodern imagination. As Montague aged, so did his values and core belief system shifts. 
leaning harder into the vast possibilities of conspiracy in the occult, often becoming the point of ridicule for future authors of both a Catholic and pagan background. Montague was an eccentric and developed quite a penchant for garnering the attention of others by not only his actions, but also by his dress and unique haircuts. Living at a time in an era alongside the likes of Crowley, playing the likes of a great wizard, Montague styled himself in the popular image of a Catholic witch hunter. It's hard to pinpoint his exact brand of spirituality, however, as so much of his personality was a contradiction, right down to his conservative religiosity, which makes little sense when viewed alongside his membership in the British Society for the Study of Sex Psychology, not to mention little gems such as the posthumously published personal diaries of socialite and later conservative politician Sir Henry Channon. These diaries relate how Channon first met Summers at a dinner party in Summers' honor, given by Lady Cunard in January 1928. Channon's diaries then describe a series of visits to Summers' home in Richmond. Channon recounts that, in more than one occasion, and at Channon's suggestion, Summers took Channon upstairs to his private chapel after dinner and beat him over the altar. Channon characterized Summers as a lecherous priest, a madman, and as dangerous as he is brilliant, cutting off contact with him after a couple of months. Summers' relationship with the Catholic Church was never a comfortable one, as none of his books were ever officially endorsed or published by the Church. His biggest critic likely being the Catholic scholar and the Jesuit, Herbert Thurston, who wrote in 1927 that nothing could serve Satan's purpose better than that the Catholic Church, his most uncompromising opponent, should be identified once more with all the extravagant beliefs and superstitions of the witch mania. It really plays into his hands, first because it makes the Church ridiculous by attributing to her a teaching flagrantly in conflict with sanity and common sense, and secondly, because it is associated with stories of all sorts of nastiness which feed a prurient curiosity under cloak of supplying scientific information. Father Thurston also called attention to the fact that Summers did not figure in any register as either an Anglican or a Catholic priest, but was instead a literary figure with distinctly decadent tastes, a view that some argue he potentially held as he considered Summers a plant, trying to discredit the church. Should be said here, however, that those close to Summers did believe him to be ordained, potentially in Italy, as there were many more dioceses at that time, and some incredibly small. It's also possible that figures within the church saw Montague as a useful tool so long as his true relationship to the church was not revealed to the public. Montague Summers died at his home in Richmond, Surrey in August 1948. The Catholic rector of St. Elizabeth of Portugal Church refused a public requiem mass, but allowed instead a private graveside ceremony Summer's grave in Richmond Cemetery was unmarked until the late 1980s when Sandy Robertson and Edwin Pouncey organized the Summer's Project 
to garner donations for a gravestone. It now bears his favorite phrase, Tell me strange things. For your morbid consideration, a selection of Montague's writings, this from the vampire his kith and kin, chapter 2, Creation of the Vampire. It may now be asked how a human being becomes a vampire, and lists the causes generally believed to predispose persons to this demonical condition. The vampire is one who has led a life more than ordinary immorality and wickedness, a man of foul, gross and selfish passions, of evil ambitions, delighting in cruelty and blood. Arthur Machen has shrewdly pointed out that sorcery and sanctity are the only realities. Each is an ecstasy, a withdrawal from the common life. The spiritual world cannot be confined to the supremely good but the supremely wicked necessarily have their portion in it. The ordinary man can no more be a great sinner than he can be a great saint. Most of us are just indifferent, mixed up creatures. We muddle through the world without realizing the meaning and inner sense of things, and consequently our wickedness and goodness are alike second rate. The saint endeavors to recover a gift which he has lost, the sinner tries to obtain something which was never his. In brief, he repeats the fall. It is not the mere liar who is excluded by those words. It is above all the saucers who use the failings incidental to material life as instruments to obtain their infinitely wicked ends. And let me tell you this, our higher senses are so blunted, we are so drenched with materialism that we should probably fail to recognize real wickedness if we encountered it. It's been said that a saint is a person who always chooses the better of two courses open to him at every step, and so the man who is truly wicked is he who always chooses the worse. Even when he does things which would be considered right, he always does them for some bad reason. To identify oneself in this way with any given course requires intense concentration and an iron strength of will and it is such persons who become vampires. Vampires believe to be one who has devoted himself during life to the practice of black magic. It is hardly to be supposed that such persons would rest undisturbed. While it is easy to believe that their malevolence had set in action forces which might prove powerful for terror and destruction, even when they were in their graves, 
It was sometimes said, though, the belief is rare, that the vampire was the offspring of a witch and the devil. With the exception of England, where witches were invariably hanged, the universal penalty for witchcraft was the stake. Cremation, the burning of the dead body, is considered to be one of the few ways in which vampirism can be stamped out. That witches were hanged in England has often been commented upon with some surprise, and persons who traveled in France and Italy were inclined to advise the same punishment should be inflicted at home as in all other countries. It was felt that unless the body were utterly consumed, it might well prove that they had not stamped out the noxious thing. It is even recorded that in one case the witch herself considered that she should be sent to the stake. A rich farmer in Northamptonshire had made an enemy of a woman named Anne Foster. Thirty of his sheep were discovered dead with their legs broken pieces and their bones all shattered in their skins. Shortly after, his house and several of his barns were found ablaze. It was suspected that Anne Foster had brought this about by sorcery. She was tried upon this charge at Northampton in 1674, and after sentence of death was passed upon her, she mightily desired to be burned, but the court would give no ear to that, but that she should be hanged at the common place of execution. The vampire is also believed to be one, for some reason is buried with mutilated rites. It will be remarked that this idea is a very distinct connection with the anxious care taken by the Greek and Roman of classical times that the dead should be consigned to the tomb with full and solemn ceremony. To the modern man, burial in the earth, or it may be cremation, is a necessary and decorous manner for the disposal of the dead. Yet in the Greek imagination, these rites implied something far more. So long as the body remains, the soul might be in some way tied and painfully linked with it. The dissolution of the body meant that the soul was no longer detained in this world where it had no appointed place, but was able to pass without let or hindrance to its own mansion prepared for it and for which it was prepared. Of old, men dutifully assisted the dead in this manner as a pious obligation and were prepared to go to any length to fulfill this obligation. It was in later years, especially under the influence of Slavonic tradition, that not only love, but fear compelled them to perform this duty to the dead, since it was generally thought that those whose bodies were not dissolved might return. Reanimated corpses, the vampire eager to satisfy his vengeance upon the living, his lust for sucking hot, reeking blood, the fulfillment of these funeral duties was a protection for themselves as well as a benefit to the departed. Elsewhere in the same book, Montague remarks, more or less, that an obsession with death, and the Gothic in general, might damn one's soul to become a vampire, and writes the following, Even the pagan poet taught his hearers and his readers that death was a sweet guerdon of repose, a blessed oblivion after the toil and struggle of life. There are few things more beautiful and there are few things more sad than the songs of our modern pagans who console their aching hearts with this wistful vision of eternal sleep. Although perhaps they themselves know it not, their delicate but despairing melancholy is a heritage from the weary yet tuneful singers of the last days of Hellas, souls for whom there was no dawn of hope in the sky, but we have a certain knowledge and a fair surety for now Christ is risen from the dead.
first fruits of them that sleep. Yet Gray, half Greek, seems to promise to his rustics and his hinds as their richest reward after life of swink and toil, dear forgetfulness and eternal sleep. Swineburne was glad that no life lives forever, that dead men rise up never, that even the weariest river winds somewhere safe to see. Only the eternal sleep and an eternal night. Emily Bront lusted for mere oblivion. Oh, for the time when I shall sleep without identity and never care how rain may steep or snow may cover me. Flecker in utter despair wells out. I know dead men are deaf and cannot hear the singing of a thousand nightingales. I know dead men are blind and cannot see the friend that shuts in horror their big eyes, and they are witless. Even more beautifully than the poets have sung, a weaver of exquisite prose is written. Death must be so beautiful to lie in the soft brown earth with the grasses waving above one's head and listen to silence, to have no yesterday and no tomorrow to forget time. Poor sorry souls, how arid, how empty are such aspirations when we think of the ardent glowing phrase of the little flower. And even in the bosom of the beatific vision, the angels watch over us. No, I shall never be able to take any rest until the end of the world, but when the angel shall have said, time is no more, then I shall rest, then I shall be able to rejoice since the number of the elect will be complete. Every man at death leaves behind him a phantom form which continues a certain kind of life, not very clearly defined, upon earth, and this spirit has power over the living, especially may it cause various kinds of sickness. The spirits of private persons can only exert their influence over the members of their own families. The souls of chiefs and great warriors have a much wider scope. They can influence the whole clan for weal or woe. They can even to some extent control the powers of nature and ensure a bountiful corn crop by their careful provisions of rain, since under their kindly direction there shall be neither too little nor too great of an abundance. Moreover, they can ward off disease, but if on the other hand they be offended, they can visit the tribe with pestilence and famine. It may be particularly noted that among the Ovambo, the phantoms of the dead magicians are dreaded and feared in no ordinary manner. The only way to prevent this increase of these dangerous spirit folk is by depriving the body of its limbs, a precaution which must be taken immediately after death. So it is customary to sever the arms and legs from the trunk and cut the tongue out of the mouth in order that the spirit may have no power, either of movement or of speech, since the mutilation of the corpse is rendered a ghost who would assuredly be both powerful and truculent and operative and incapable. It will later be seen that the mutilation, the cutting off of the head and especially the driving of a stake through the body with other dismemberments were resorted to as the most effective means, short of complete cremation, of dealing with a vampire. Whilst according to theosophists, only those become vampires who have during their lifetime been adepts in black magic and Miss Jessie Adeline Middleton says that the people who become vampires are witches, wizards, and suicides. 
Make no mistake, Montague was no fool and he wasn't completely superstitious about everything. He did have some scientific tendencies about himself, including the understanding of false death. The idea of someone uh, being in a coma with their heart rate low, their breathing shallow, etc. This is where he explains that wakes come from, where people would sometimes slip into the state uh, depending on what they were imbibing alcohol-wise and some of the chemicals that might have leached from their cups, leading to laying the person on a table and waiting around for them to potentially wake up. He tells several stories of such nature, but the one that I really like and the one that I'm very curious about, and I'm not entirely sure how to take it myself, is the following. The story of Gabrielle de Lune, a lady whose cause was tried before the High Court of Paris about 1760, caused a profound sensation throughout the whole of France. When 18 years of age, Gabrielle, the daughter of M. de Lune, the president of the Civil Tribunal of Toulouse, was betrothed to Captain Maurice de Serres. Unhappily, the latter was suddenly ordered abroad to the Indies on active service. The president, fearing that his child might die in a foreign land, refused to allow the marriage to be celebrated immediately so that she might accompany her husband under his protection. The lovers parted, heartbroken, and in about two years' time, news reached France of the gallant young soldier's death. This, however, proved to be false, although his safety was not known until, after an absence of well near five years, he presented himself once more in Paris. Here, he happened to pass the church of S. Roche, the entire facade of which was heavily draped with black and shrouded for the funeral of some person of distinction. Upon inquiry, he learned that the mourning was on account of a young and beautiful lady who had died suddenly after two days' illness, the wife of the President de Bourg, who before her marriage had been Mademoiselle Gabrielle de Lunay. It appeared that, owing to the report of the death of Maurice de Sers, M. de Lunay had compelled his daughter to marry this gentleman who, although nearly 30 years as senior, was a figure of great wealth and importance. As may be imagined, the young captain was distracted with grief, but that night, taking a considerable sum in gold, he visited the sexton of the cemetery of S. Roche, and with great difficulty bribed him to exhume the corpse of Madame du Bourg, in order that he might once more look upon the features of the woman who he had so passionately loved. With every precaution, under the pale light of a waning moon, the terrible task was completed. The coffin was silently unscrewed, and the unhappy lover threw himself upon his knees in agony and grief. At last, the grave digger suggested that everything must be replaced in order, when, with a terrible cry, the young officer suddenly seized the cold clay body, and before the bewildered sexton could prevent him, threading his rapid course among the tombs, with lightning speed, he disappeared into the darkness. Pursuit was useless, and nothing remained but for the poor man to replace the empty shell in the grave, to shovel back the earth and arrange the spot so that there might be no trace of any disturbance. He felt sure, at least, that his accomplice in so terrible a crime, a sacrilege which would inevitably bring the severest punishment upon those concerned in it, must maintain silence, if only for his own sake. Nearly five years had passed when M. Dubourg, who upon the anniversary of his wife's death each June, attended a solemn requiem. 
As he was passing through a somewhat unfrequented street in the suburbs of Paris, came face to face with a lady in whom he recognized none other than the wife whose death he had mourned so tenderly and so long. As he attempted to speak, she with averted look swept past him as swiftly as the wind and leaped into a carriage with emblazoned panels, was driven quickly away before he could reach the spot. However, M. Dubourg had noticed the arms of the noble house of Desserts, and he determined that inquiry should at once be made. It was no difficult task for a man of his position to obtain an order that the grave of his wife might be examined, and when this was done, the empty broken coffin turned suspicion into certainty. The fact that the sexton had resigned his post and had gone, no one knew where, but seemingly in comfortable circumstances shortly after the funeral of Madame de Bourg lent its weight to the investigations, which were now taken in hand. Experienced lawyer, that he was, M. Dubourg accumulated evidence of the first importance. He found that it was said that Captain Maurice de Serres had married his young and lovely wife, Madame Julia de Serres, some five years previous, and as it was supposed, then brought her back with him from some foreign country to Paris. The whole city was astounded when the President Dubourg demanded from the High Court the dissolution of the illegal marriage between Captain Maurice de Serres and the pretended Julie de Serres who as the plaintiff steadfastly declared was Gabrielle Dubourg, his lawful wife. The novelty of the circumstances caused the profoundest sensation and vast numbers of pamphlets were exchanged by the faculty, many of whom maintained that a prolonged trance had given rise to the apparent death of Madame Dubourg. And it was stated that although she had continued to exist for a great number of hours in her grave, cases of similar lethargies had been recorded and even if such fits were of the rarest, yet the circumstance was possible. Madame Julie de Serres was summoned to appear in court and answer the question of the judges. She stated that she was an orphan born in South America and had never left her native country until her marriage. Certificates were produced, and on every side lengthy arguments were heard, which it is unnecessary to detail. Many romantic incidents ensued, but these, however interesting, must be passed over for it shall suffice to say that eventually, mainly through the sudden introduction of her little daughter, amid a pathetic scene, the identity of Julie de Serres with Gabrielle de Bourg, née Lunay, was established and acknowledged. In vain did her advocate plead that her marriage to M. de Bourg had been dissolved by death, although this fact most certainly ought to have been accepted as consonant with sound theology. Nonetheless, the result was that in spite of her prayer to be allowed to enter a cloister, she was ordered to return to her first husband. Two days after the President Dubourg awaited her arrival in the great hall of his mansion, she appeared, but could scarcely totter through the gates, for she had but a few moments previously drained a swift poison. Crying, I restore to you what you have lost, she fell a corpse at his feet. At the same moment, Captain de Serres died by his own hands. Often Montague calls on the old spiritualist tradition from a few decades prior, sounding somewhere between Madame Blavatsky and the modern-day race dance from Ghostbusters. Here we get into some ectoplasm. With these pregnant and remarkable details in mind, we may consider the explanation of vampirism given by Z.T. Piart, a well-known French spiritualist and sometimes editor of La Revue Spiritualiste. He writes as follows, 
As long as the astral form is not entirely liberated from the body, there is a liability that it may be forced by magnetic attraction to re-enter it. Sometimes, it will be only halfway out when the corpse, which presents the appearance of death, is buried. In such cases, the terrified astral soul re-enters its casket, and then one of two things happen. The person buried either writhes in agony of suffocation, or, if he has been grossly material, becomes a vampire. The bicorporeal life then begins. The ethereal form can go where it pleases, and as long as it does not break the link connecting it with the body can wander visible or invisible and feed on its victims. It then transmits the results of the suction by some mysterious invisible cord of connection to the body, thus aiding it to perpetuate the state of catalepsy. Duly discounting this peculiar phraseology of astral soul and ethereal form, this comment seems to point towards a possible and correct explanation. There remain three hypotheses to be considered. Does the body of the vampire actually dematerialize and then reintegrate outside the grave? Or is another body built up by the vampire quite independently of the body which remains behind in the grave? Thirdly, does the spirit of the vampire withdraw ectoplasmic material from his own body, which enables him to form more permanent corporeity by drawing yet further material from his victims? The second of these suggestions we may dismiss without much consideration, since it is not borne out by any of the facts which have been investigated with regard to the subject and the truth seems to lie between the first and the third hypothesis, partaking of both. The body of the vampire under certain conditions acquires subtlety, and therefore it is able to pass through material objects, but in order to ensure not only its vitality, but the permanence of this subtle quality, it must draw this energy, no doubt very often in ectoplasmic form from its victim, as well as what is necessary for its rejuvenescence. The continual demand which a vampire makes both physically and spiritually upon its victims must speedily result in the death of those persons, who being infected with the poison, will in their turn visit others upon whom they will prey. It must always be remembered that the word vampire is used so loosely that there are traditions and legends which hardly require even one of these three hypotheses for their explanation, and which one cannot too frequently repeat the caution, refer to phantoms of the vampire family rather than to the vampire proper. It certainly seems a possibility, and something more than a possibility, that vampiric entities may be on the watch and active to avail themselves of the chances to use the ectoplasmic emanations of mediums at seances, and this certainly constitutes a very formidable danger. It is even a fact that if a person who consciously or unconsciously possesses the natural qualities of a materializing medium is placed in certain noxious circumstances. For example, if he visits a house which is powerfully haunted by a malefic influence, especially if he be fatigued and languid so as to offer little or no resistance, a vampirish entity may temporarily utilize his vitality to attempt a partial materialization. This seems clear from the many instances of persons who for no obvious reasons are in certain spots. It may be a place, a house, or even a room overcome with a depression, which if they do not shake off by an act of will or by leaving the particular locality, may develop into an actual debility, an invertation. A very striking example of an entity who in this way made an attempt at materialization is recorded by Miss Gathard in her contribution to survival, 
a symposium which was published under the editorial care of Sir James Marchant. Miss Gathard relates, I saw ectoplasm in solid form for the first time when looking for rooms in the neighborhood of Russell Square. My friend, many years older than myself, was tired. She wore a black velvet cloak and was sitting on a high chair so that her mantle hung in long folds to the ground. While the light from the large windows fell full on her face, suddenly I observed on her left side, just above her waist, a patch of cloudy white substance becoming bigger and denser as I watched its uncanny growth. Meanwhile, I was discussing terms with the landlady, a frail little woman, when a look of terror came into her eyes. She too was staring transfixed at the globular mass of white substance on my companion's black mantle, for out of it looked a living face, normal in size, a man's face with rolling eyes and leering grin that made one's blood run cold. When I mentally ordered him away, he grinned defiance, fearing to startle my friends. I took the landlady aside and asked what was the matter. She burst into tears. Oh, miss, did you not see him? He was my first. He comes like this several times and has never forgiven me for marrying again. What do you mean? I asked again severely. Oh, she wailed. You must have seen his wicked face glaring at us from your friend's cloak. And now you will not take the rooms. And now we turn to Montague's book, The Werewolf and Lore and Legend. This book was actually used as a jumping off point for the writer of Lon Chaney's famous The Wolfman. And I think you might see some similarities to Skinwalkers in this first extract. Werewolf. This name remains still known in the Teutonic and is as much to say man-wolf, the Greeks expressing the very like and Lycanthropos. Utilius not knowing what were signified, because in the Netherlands it is now clean, out of wolves, except thus composed with wolf, does misinterpret due to his fancy. The werewolves are certain sorcerers who having anointed their bodies with an ointment which they make by the instinct of the devil, and putting on a certain enchanted girdle, do not only unto the view of others seem as wolves, but to their own thinking have both the shape and nature of wolves, so long as they wear the said girdle, and they do dispose themselves as very wolves, in worrying and killing and most of humane creatures. Of such sundry have been taken and executed in sundry parts of Germany and the Netherlands, one Peter Stump for being a werewolf and having killed 13 children two women and one man, was at Bedburg, not far from Cullen in the year 1589, put into a very terrible death. The flesh of diverse parts of his body was pulled out with hot iron tongs, his arms, thighs, and legs broke on a wheel, and his body lastly burnt. He died with very great remorse, desiring that his body might not be spared from any torment, so his soul might be saved. The werewolf so-called in Germany, is in France called Loup Garou. In Abyssinia and in the Egyptian Sudan, the wizards are credited with the power of becoming hyenas at will. Throughout that vast continent, man metamorphosizes himself into many other animals, the leopard, 
the jaguar, the lion, the elephant, the crocodile, the alligator, and even the fish such as the shark. Throughout India, but more particularly in the northern Himalayan districts, the were-tiger prowls. In Java, Borneo, and the Malay states, there are were-leopards to boots. The were-tiger is also known in China and Japan, but here the were-fox is both feared and honored. The were-badger and the were-dog are also saucers. Sometimes it may be friendly saucers in animal shape. The Torjas of the central Salibs give their wizards a yet wider range of metamorphosis, which includes cats, crocodiles, wild pigs, apes, deer, and buffaloes. In the West Indies, we return to the transformation into a hyena. In North America, we meet once more the werewolf, as also the werebuffalo. Of old in Central America and Mexico and Peru, men knew the were-tiger or were-eagle and the were-serpent. In South America, generally today, the warlock is generally credited to shift his shape to the jaguar, but there are also tales of were-tigers, were-eagles, and were-serpents. Later in the book, he remarks on witchcraft and the various different spells for creating werewolves or other similar creatures. However, these several kinds of witches may slightly differ one from another, some using one sort of spoken spell and some another, a filter or brew. They all have this in common. They have made a pact with the devil of which the chief article is the renunciation of God and the chief intent to ensue evil and do it. Especially do they raise strife in households. They sow discord betwixt man and wife. They procure sterility and abortion and strike man in his deepest affections in human love, depriving him of the virile member. These acts are particularly reprobated in the famous Bull of Innocent Eights, Sumus, Desiderantes, Effectibus, 9th December, 1484. Sinert indeed quotes from Condriki, whose authority he was apparently unaware is the Malleus Maleficarium. He also has an interesting history from Zaguto, under whose direct notice the incidents came a young gallant of Lisbon endeavoring to gain the love of a maiden aged 16. The child of worthy and wealthy parents had recourse to a witch. This hag molded a wax image of the girl and used various incantations with the result that the victim fell into an extraordinary sickness and baffled the physicians, who deemed she was suffering from some affection of the womb. Welling, at her wit's end, her parents secretly consulted an astrologer and eventually the girl was cured by the help of a sorceress. Before she was finally freed, she vomited a creature like a mouse. Although the tractate De Spiritus et Anima is certainly not to be assigned to St. Augustine, this work has so often been quoted as by the great doctor that it will not be amiss in passing to cite the famous passage, thence to which appeal is found again and again in older writers. It is very generally believed that by certain witches, spells, and the power of the devil, men may be changed into wolves and beasts of burden, and as pack animals be made to bear and carry loads, and when their work is done they return to their original shapes, but they do not lose their human reason and understanding, nor are their minds made the intelligence of a mere beast. Now this must be understood in this way, namely, that the devil creates no new nature but that he is able to make something appear to be 
which in reality is not. For by no spell nor evil power can the mind, nay not even the body, corporally be changed into the material limbs and features of any animal. But a man is fantastically and by illusion metamorphosed into an animal, albeit he to himself seems to be a quadruped. And as for the burdens which the beast carries, if they be real, they are supported and borne by familiars, so that all who see the seeming animal may be mocked and deluded by diabolical glamour. It is no matter for wonder that when certain women are deluded and deceived by diabolic and fantastical agencies, that they exhibit the very nature, the form and likeness, the agility and feline proclivities of cats, and they are persuaded that they are cats, whilst those of their company believe them to be cats, and they in turn believe that those of their society are also cats. This is amply proven by the free confessions of such women. An explanation of this may very well be that the demon has from certain natural elements formed an aerial body in the shape of a cat, and interposing this fantastical body between the side of the eyes and the essential human body, he thus deceives and deludes one and all. No thinking person can deny that these witches, in the form of cats, suck the blood of children and overlook them, and indeed not unseldom kill them by diabolical agency. That many such delusions are wrought cannot be doubted, and the supernatural method in which this is accomplished may be ambiguous. It may be admitted that witches are themselves often mocked and tricked by the demon when they think they are actually cats, and even when they deem they are sucking the blood of some child. For as the demon impresses upon their imagination and vision the form of some animal, so may he offer for their sight and taste some fluid of the color and savor of blood. For as S. Thomas allows, the devil can entirely bemuse and cheat the senses. At the same time, it is very probable, and indeed it has often been known to happen, that witches do actually and indeed suck children's blood, which they draw either by some sharp needle or by the scratch of their long nails, or else by the aid of the devil they pierce some vital vein and scars are left in the tenderest parts of the child's body, whence they have sucked the hot lifeblood and the child becomes anemic, wastes away and dies. This cannot be gainsaid since it is proven by irrefragable testimony, and it has been demonstrated that after witches in the form of cats have been seen to attack children, blood is noticed to trickle and trill from wounds, although they may be very small, and accordingly the devil hath been busy there. That these cat witches should find their way most steadily and stealthily and silkily into bedchambers, leap walls, run with exceeding nimbleness, and speed, and in every way behave, as Grimalkins won't. It's not at all surprising, for they accomplish these actions by the devil's aid, who assists them, lending them excessive fleetness, a swift motion, impossible to natural man. Many who have seen these cat witches have borne witness to these facts, and such circumstances are amply proven and received. In fine, I doubt whether the whole matter has been summed up then here, for as the devil aids the cat witch, this demon animal that has all the proclivities of a cat, so will he energize the werewolf, who will thus be possessed of all the savagery and fiercest instincts of a ravening wolf.
C.W. Leadbeater, and his The Astral Plane, Its Scenery, Inhabitants, and Phenomenon, offers a theosophical explanation of the many problems concerning vampires and werewolves. His view is that certain astral entities are able to materialize the astral body of a perfectly brutal and cruel man who has gained some knowledge of magic, and these fiends drive on this astral body, which they mold into the form of some wild animal, usually the wolf, to blood and maraud. In his monograph, The Book of Werewolves, Baron Gould is inclined to attribute werewolfery, the terrible truth of which he does not for a moment evade, to a species of madness during the accesses of which the person afflicted believes himself to be a wild beast, acts like a wild beast. In some cases, this madness amounts apparently to positive possession. Mr. Elliot O'Donnell in his Werewolves remarks that the actual process of the metamorphosis savors the superphysical. The werewolf is sometimes an outward form of wolf, sometimes partly a wolf and partly human. This may be the result of the fact that he is a hybrid of the material and immaterial. The opinions of those whose views of the werewolf postulate a complete denial of the supernatural need not, I think, detain us here and are in themselves unworthy of record. We may now proceed to inquire how this change, the shape-shifting, was affected in this case of those who were metamorphosed involuntarily. The transformation was of course caused by some spell cast over them through the malignant power of a witch. With regard to the voluntary werewolf, under whom for this consideration we may include any kind of shape-shifting, in the first place an essential circumstance and condition is a pact, formal or tacit with the demon. Such metamorphosis can only be wrought by black magic. This is in itself a mortal sin, for as S. Bonaventura instructs us, it is sinful to seek either counsel or aid from the demon. Again, the werewolf is a sorcerer, well-versed, and of long continuance in the devil's service. No mere journeyman of evil, for Gazzo tells us, this seems particularly worth noting, that just as emperors reserve certain rewards for their veteran soldiers only, so the demon grants this power of changing themselves into different shapes as the witches believe, only to those who approve their loyalty by many years of faithful service in witchcraft. And this, as it were a reward for their long service and loyalty, this was amply proved by Henry Carmutz in year 1583 by his own particular confession, coming after that of many others of his sort. The Pharmacutria has a reference to these witch ointments. Lines 96 through 100, a passage which Dryden thus turns. These poisonous plants for magic use design, the noblest and best of all the baneful kind. Old Maris brought me from the Pontic Strand, and culled the mischief of a bounteous land. Smeared with these powerful juices on the plain, he howls a wolf among the hungry train, and the oft-mighty necromancer boasts, with these to call from tombs of the stalking ghosts, and from these roots to tear the standing corn which world aloft to distant fields is born. At other points in the same book, the werewolf sounds much more like what we now might consider a dogman. On one occasion, Benoist Bedell, a lad of 15 or 16, had climbed a tree to pluck some fruit. Leaving his younger sister at the foot, the girl was attacked by a wolf who suddenly darted from the bushes, whereupon her brother, quickly descending, endeavored to protect her. 
the wolf turning to the boy with a fierce blow of its paw, drove into his neck a knife he was carrying. By this time, a number of people had rushed to the assistance of the children and beat off the animal, maiming and hurting it. The lad was carried into his father's house, where he died of his wounds in a few days, but before he died, he declared that the wolf which had torn him had its two forefeet like a man's hands, covered on the top with hair. They expired, maimed and injured, although nobody exactly knew how, precisely as the wolf had been hurt. A woman in a village, who was a notorious witch, Pernay Gendelian. It was then that the villagers realized that she was the werewolf. In the year 1542, Constantinople was so plagued by werewolves that Soyman II, the Magnificent, at the head of his Janissaries, led an attack against them and destroyed no less than 150 of these monsters who were prowling the streets and lanes of the city. Nor is this at all strange if we consider the terrible doom of Constantinople less than a century before, when amid unspeakable cruelty and carnage, an imperial city of the Christians became the capital of the Ottoman Empire. The monasteries were violated, the churches turned into mosques, and incontently, under the rule of the turban, the rank weeds of magic flourished and grew most luxuriantly. From Witchcraft and Black Magic to scoff at the existence and activities of evil discarnate intelligences, that is to say demons, is not merely to reject the Christian religion, it is to deny all religion. For from the very dawning of the world, in no land, however barbarian and remote, is to be traced any form of religion which does not recognize evil spirits. And the older, the more learned, the tradition, the firmer is the belief. The Jews held that God often employed demons to punish and avenge, and so the psalmist, when he has sung of the plagues of Egypt, sacred Nile turned to blood, the devouring locust on the wing, and black swarms of noisome flies, the fair vineyards laid waste with hail, the fruit crop ruined with hoarfrost, exalting proclaims, and he sent upon them the wrath of his indignation indignation and wrath he sent upon them, the wrath of his indignation, indignation and wrath and trouble which he sent by evil angels. There are spirits that are created for vengeance, and in their fury they lay on grievous torments, so writes Ben Sira, the wise man, in Ecclesiasticus. We cannot, of course, exactly map out the world of spirits. And many persons believe that alleged spirit communications, so often amazingly vertical, and yet more often maliciously misleading and intentionally deceptive, proceed from discarnate intelligences, possibly human, possibly quite alien to the earth. Sister Anne Catherine Emmerich tells us that there are souls neither in heaven, purgatory or hell, but wandering the earth in terrible anguish. And there are also planetary spirits, who are entirely different from devils, but who may yet have to be judged. This certainly agrees with the teaching of Sinistari, who holds the possible existence of rational creatures having spirit and body, at least in the philosophical sense, and distinct from man, 
There may be creatures in existence endowed with rational spirits and a corporeity less gross than man. Among these would rank the poltergeists. Nonetheless, these considerations must not in any way persuade us to minimize the fact of the existence of demon hosts and their activities and correspondence with wicked men and interference in human affairs. Médère Maurice Garçon, one of the leaders of the French bar today, and a high authority upon contemporary black magic and witchcraft, in the course of an address delivered before the Institut Metaphysique in Paris, September 1929, stated, The first step for novices in sorcery and witchcraft is to make a contract with the devil. Richard Beauvais, in his pandemonium, says that once the witch has made the contract with the devil, he hath season of her as his property. The terms of these contracts are that the proselyte pledges his soul to the evil one in return for power, wealth, revenge, or some other material object he craves for in this world. I have not only held some of these contracts in my hand, said Mater Garçon, but I actually witnessed one of these strange businesses not so very long ago. He related how it had come to his knowledge that a neophyte in demonism intended to evoke the devil in a haunted wood. Mater Garçon and a second witness concealed themselves behind the trees. Once under a full moon, they had a clear view of the spot appointed for the rendezvous. The saucer arrived on the scene at midnight and proceeded to enact in every detail the horrid ritual blasphemy. He traced with meticulous care upon the ground the magic circle, inscribed within and without with the seals and sigils of fallen angels and their awful names. He lighted two pitch black candles, which owing to the chemicals kneaded into the wax, flickered with a dull blue flame. He burned in a silver censer stolen from a church scarcity, and in bitter mockery broken and defiled, cold deadly nightshade, rank henbane, and prickly purpling capsules, a thorn apple, and acrid myrrh. He paced Wiedershins about the circle, in the center of which he next took his place, intoning meanwhile in Rosh's voice the litanies and conjurations of power that summon the regents of hell. At the climax, raising himself on tiptoe with frozen gestures, the man threw out his hands in ghastly appeal, professing to Satan the infernal character scrawled and blotted with his own blood, and amid grim and grinding imprecations, vowing that in addition to the forfeit of his own unhappy soul, he would win the demon a votary for every wish that was granted, every lust that was satiate and fulfilled, that the fiend, who doubtless was hovering hard by, did not actually manifest himself, is without question due to the fact that these goblin ceremonies were overseen by profane eyes, by secret watchers, not of the warlock band. For Satan loves secrecy and dark mystery and lonely horror and will not tolerate at his rights the presence of any who are not his worshippers and sworn slaves if their assemblies are intruded upon by any accidents. The members endeavor to kill the too curious stranger on the spot, which is very easily to be understood.
I thought it highly worthwhile to record a little outro for our Montague Summers episode. As I said, or tried to imply at the very least, in the introduction to this episode, obviously, I don't entirely agree with Montague Summers, specifically when it comes to his views on witchcraft. It was very black or white, with no room for gray in between. Everything was either 100% Catholic dogma or nothing. What I do appreciate about Montague Summers, though, is the fact that he believed in something. And I do believe from reading his works that he went out of his way to show examples of maladies that could have been confused for something paranormal when they were not. I do believe he took his work very seriously, and I do believe that he had at least a working understanding of the occult to some degree. Now, where he took it and what his belief system made of that is something entirely different uh, that I will leave entirely up to you and your speculation. I will say his books are worthwhile to have if you're interested in these kind of subjects. His, They're hard to read. They're dense. Uh, the Vampire, it's Kith and Kin is the easiest of them to read from what I've gone through thus far. There are massive bibliographies for every chapter. This guy really, really researched this stuff in depth. In fact, in the Werewolf book, the bibliography isn't even at the end of the book. It's at the end of each chapter, and the bibliographies are almost as thick as each chapter. It is absolutely insane the amount of information that he cataloged and other volumes that are out there. Now, all that said, I thought it might be worthwhile to touch on the idea of what a black mass is, as Montague claimed to have attended at least three of these in his younger days, and railed on and on and on about witches and black masses. I should also point out that we only know of one instance whereupon Montague met Aleister Crowley. And that was for a dinner where they supposedly drank together and discussed such subjects for hours on end. But when he died, he and Crowley were living in the same neighborhood just a few houses apart. So I find it hard to believe that they didn't speak more than once. In fact, I suspect they both enjoyed being, well, I know Crowley did, you know, calling yourself the Beast 666. You certainly have to enjoy shocking people. I suspect that Montague enjoyed that too. Maybe in a different way, but he certainly was playing a character in public by the way he dressed, his haircut, his actions, and his very high voice. Anyways, from OccultWorld.com The Black Mass is an obscene parody of the Catholic Holy Mass at which the devil is worshipped. During the Inquisition, witch hunters and demonologists claim that witches are any heretics, frequently perform black masses as part of their infernal sabbats, with demons and the devil. Black masses have been performed for centuries and occur in contemporary times, but it is doubtful that they have been as prevalent or as outrageous as often claimed. There is no simple definitive Black Mass ritual. The purpose is to parody the Catholic Holy Mass by performing it or parts of it backward, inverting the cross, stepping or spitting on the cross, stabbing the host, and performing other sacrilegious acts. Urine is sometimes substituted for the holy water, used to sprinkle the attendees. Urine or water is substituted for wine and rotted turnip slices. Pieces of black leather or black triangles are substituted for the host. Black candles, 
are substituted for white ones. The service is performed by a defrocked or renegade priest who wears vestments that are black or the color of dried blood and embroidered with an inverted cross, a goat's head, or magical symbols. One famous form of the Black Mass was the Mass of St. Sicaire, said to have originated in the Middle Ages in Gascony for the purpose of cursing an enemy to death by slow-wasting illness. Montague Summers provides a description of it in the history of witchcraft and demonology. The Mass is said upon a broken and desecrated altar, in some ruined or deserted church where owls hoot and mope and bats flit through the crumbling windows, where toads spit their venom upon the sacred stone. The priest must make his way thither, late attended only by an acolyte of impure and evil life. At the first stroke of eleven he begins. The liturgy of hell is mumbled backward. The canon, said with a maw and a sneer, he ends just as midnight tolls.